You're listening to an audio message from Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. For more information, visit our website at harvestgranger.org. Today's title of the message is Made to Grow. I want to start with this verse here in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. It says this, grow. If we just stopped right there, we would have enough to go home with, okay? That is a command. It is a command to grow. If you are not growing, it means you're dying. And so we need to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what's happening back in the discipleship factory this morning with our children. That's what happens on Wednesday nights when the youth gather for worship. That's what happens on Sunday mornings when we open our Bible and lean in and to listen. We are growing in the knowledge and the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And do you know what happens when we grow? God gets glory. That's what it's all about. It's not just about us. Our growth is a a means to an end. The end is the glory of God. To Him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. So we need to continue to grow. And one of the ways that we're doing that is by studying the book of Ecclesiastes. We were made for more. Now, as we open the book of Ecclesiastes, I told you this a couple of weeks ago, Ecclesiastes is a really strange letter. It's almost, it's almost if, you, if you're careful, if you're not too careful, it would read like a suicide note. I mean, the guy is depressed. And all he's doing is he's writing this, is cataloging everything he's tried to find meaning and purpose in life and he can't find it and all he says throughout the book over and over 40 different times in the book he says vanity of vanities it's all vanities as a matter of fact look at it here in verse 1 the words of the preacher the son of David the king of Jerusalem and we identified that as who King Solomon and Solomon is writing at the end of his lifetime and this is his summary of life verse 2 Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, in case you didn't pick it up. All is vanity. Five times he uses the verse, uses the word in one verse. And we learned that that word is a really strange word. It kind of loses its meaning in the English translation. Some translations translate it meaningless or futile. It's, it's really a metaphor for smoke or fog or haze or vapor. It's like on a cold morning in Michiana when you breathe out your breath and this vapor appears for a minute. And if you were to try to grab it, you couldn't get your hands around it. What he's saying is that's what life is like. As much as you try to get a grip on life, you just are left wanting more, more control over the things that happen. But no matter what you try, you just can't quite get a grip on what the purpose of all this is. And the Hebrew word that's used is hevel. In other words, it's it's a metaphor, but the word hevel, it's a great word. You can just think about it. Whenever you see something really weird or confusing going on, you can't quite understand. You just step back. It's like, what the hevel? What is, what, what is that? All right, just turn to your neighbor right now. Like, what the hell? What is going on? I don't understand what this thing is, right? That's what he's saying. So over and over, we see this Hebrew word, and he's trying to help us. Now, in order to understand Ecclesiastes, I told you it's really strange. Here, here's the key to understanding the book, okay? There are two voices in Ecclesiastes. We've already identified the first one. Who is that? Solomon, richest guy that ever lived, wisest guy that ever lived. He tried everything and he's really depressed. 
Now, throughout the book, occasionally we hear from a second voice. And that is the voice that gives us the perspective of eternity. Over and over, Solomon says, there is nothing under the sun that satisfies. It's all hevel. And yet the second voice comes in and actually gives us a perspective beyond the sun. And if we don't, if we don't understand that, then we're all just going to go home and commit suicide. That's, that's not the purpose of the vit. T turn to your neighbor and say, that is not, God does not want you to commit suicide. That is not the purpose of the book. So we need to hear from the second voice. Now, seriously, look at me right now. Some of you have been swimming in the hevel and you've never heard the second voice. My prayer is this morning we will hear from the other voice. And in order to do that, I want you to turn all the way to the back of the book, find chapter 12, and I want to read to you what really was one of the most formational verses in the Bible for me as a teenager. This is one of the first verses that I was ever introduced to as a 15-year-old when I first came to Christ and I first started reading the Bible. This verse gripped me as a 15-year-old. And I'm so sad that today our high school students are at Winterfest. Tyler took all the teenagers away on the day that I'm preaching to the teenagers. So on Wednesday night, I'm going in there and they're getting this, okay? So uh, this is what it says. It says, remember also your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days, before the, before the evil days come and the years draw near in which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Now skip down to verse 13. This is the conclusion of the whole book. Last two verses. And he says this, the end of the matter in other words, after everything has been tried, everything's been experienced, here's the conclusion I draw. The end of the matter, all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man, or the, the whole purpose of man. This is what you were made for. You were made to fear God and keep his commandments. For God will bring every deed into judgment, whether good or evil, with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Very simple outline this morning. Three points, six words. It's simply this. Remember God, fear God, obey God. That's how you grow in this life. That's how you grow in grace. We need to grow in remembering God, grow in fearing God, and grow in obeying God. So let's take those one by one. The first one is remember God. Now I am told here in verse one that I am to remember. Let me explain that for you, okay? Are you ready? Write this definition down. Remember means don't forget. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning to learn something new? You see, that's the point. There's really a not, not a whole lot new that you need to learn. You just need to remember what you already know. Now, some, I'm looking at the faces of some of you. You, were, you came to church nine months before you were born. Just think about it. That didn't land very well. Did you understand? So you, 
you, you didn't have a choice, right? So, and some of you, you remember crawling the aisle as an infant and giving your heart and life to Jesus as soon as you heard the gospel. Some of, I'm talking, and you've been in church every day since that, almost. And there's others of you that this is your first day in church. I'm speaking to a wide range of people this morning. Understand this, that God doesn't want you to forget the, found tr the foundational truths of who he is. The reality is some of you are taking notes right now and you're going to keep those notes and file them right next to the notes that you took last week, next to the notes that you took last year, next to the notes that you took when you were 15 years old. As a matter of fact, in my office right now, my, I love to show my staff this. They can't believe I have it. I have every sermon note I have ever taken on every sermon I've ever heard. Okay, they're in my office. I can pull them out. I can pull it. There's 1987 right there. And, and I can see what the preacher preached there. Listen, for me, it's really not about learning anything new. It's about not forgetting what I already know. You live in a world that is trying to convince you to forget God. And it doesn't matter how much you affirm on Sunday. It matters whether or not you remember it when you wake up on Monday. Some of us live as practical atheists. We say we believe what we heard on Sunday, but you forget it by the time the alarm goes off on Monday morning. Remembering means don't forget. Let me tell you what else remembering means. Remembering means bringing Thoughts of God into your mind consciously and intentionally when you are faced with the hevel. You see, when you are faced with the tragedy that is this life and when things don't make sense and when a 19-year-old walks into a school and shoots 17 of his classmates in Florida, you get face-to-face -face with the hevel and you say, that doesn't make sense. Why doesn't somebody do something about that? Why didn't God do something about that? That's when you have to remember your creator in the days of your youth. When you've done everything you can to work hard and save and to plan and spend thrifty and you still lose your job and you're still short on money and you still can't pay your mortgage, that's when you have to remember. When you love your family and someone gets cancer and somebody dies and you're left alone, that's when you have to remember the things that you know are true about God. No matter what the hevel, Remember your creator in the days of your youth. You see, it's as simple as this. Remembering God is the remedy for the hevel. Remembering is the remedy for the hevel. So we're told that we should remember. Secondly, we're told, we're told um, when we're to remember. You see, we're to remember when we are disillusioned with wisdom. So let's go back and kind of look at some of the things that he's cataloged, he tried. Let's look at three things that he tried to find meaning and purpose in life. The first of those is wisdom. Now remember, this is Solomon, wisest man who ever lived. This is the same guy that wrote the book of Proverbs, okay? So he, he cataloged for us all kinds of great statements that, that are wisdom. And then by the time he tries it all, he's like, ah. 
I just can't find any purpose in that. Look at what he says in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 13 through 18. He says, I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under the sun. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. As a matter of fact, if you're a student, you can probably really appreciate those words, right? As I, here's a great verse. This is another reason why I like Ecclesiastes. If you let your eyes go down your page, you're in chapter 12. Look at verse uh, uh, 12, he, uh, Ecclesiastes 12, 12. He says, my son, be aware of anything beyond these. Of the making of books, there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. Do I have any college students in here that are weary right now? Because you think you're never going to get to the end of all the books that you're supposed to read. And, and I'm seeing, they're so weary. They're about to fall asleep right now. But what he's saying, he's not saying wisdom is bad. He's just like, it's, it's wearisome. So he goes on and he continues in chapter one. He says, I have seen everything that is done under the sun and behold, all is hevel and a striving after the wind. Again, there's a metaphor of you can't quite grab the wind or control it. It always leaves you wanting more control. He says, what is crooked cannot be made straight. In other words, all those dirty, rotten rascals that are out there making life miserable and why don't they get caught and why isn't justice served and why did the person that hurt me, why aren't they um, convicted of crime? He's like, you, you can have all the wisdom you can. You still can't make things that are crooked straight. And what is lacking can't be counted. In other words, no matter how much wisdom you have, you never have enough. You the more you learn, the more you realize you lack in wisdom. And so he says this, I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind, for in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. In other words, the more you know about the way the world works, the sadder you get. This is the wisest man who ever lived. And he was sad because he still didn't have enough knowledge or wisdom to figure out why it stinks here. A couple of years ago, on this platform, uh, we had a couple of men come to speak to our college students. And uh, the two men were very impressive men. One of them was David Robinson. You know David Robinson, seven feet one inch tall, played for the Spurs, won NBA championships. He's in the NBA Hall of Fame. The reason he was here is not because of him, even though he was awesome. It was because of his short son, Corey, who's only six feet, five inches tall. And uh, Corey was at the time playing wide receiver for the University of Notre Dame. And so uh, Corey had just finished his freshman year. And, and so we had some connections and we got as many college students. We had about 300 college students in here. And a lot of the Notre Dame football players were here. And both David and Corey shared their testimony of faith in Christ. And it was a, it was a fantastic night. Corey shared about how when he was in high school, he heard the gospel. It impacted him. He repented of sin. He put his faith in Christ and he loved scripture and he loved God and he was growing in Christ. And one of the reasons that he chose to go to Notre Dame was because he perceived that it was a faith friendly environment. And so he's, he, 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 he came here, he played wide receiver, but then he got here and he enrolled in his, his classes in philosophy at Notre Dame. 
And he said he had to read all these books of dead philosophers and, and they were so depressing because they were trying to explain the world without God and, and they had a worldview that was kind of anti-God and, and, and he was reading all this stuff he'd never been exposed to before. And he said, quite frankly, my faith was challenged. I was questioning God. Had I been lied to? And, and I was, he said, I was just so depressed and I was just kind of curled up in a fetal position. And, and he said, finally... I reached for my Bible and I opened it up to Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 1. And it told me to remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, in which you say, I have no pleasure in them. He said, I, recomm I recommitted my life to Christ. I reaffirmed my belief in His Word. And later on, you might remember, Corey quit football before all of his eligibility had run out. And the reports were it was because of concussions that he had, had sustained. I'm sure that played a role in it. But those people that know Corey the best knew that Corey just kind of found playing with balls was just kind of meaningless. He wanted his life to count for more. He realized he was made for more. So he became student body president at Notre Dame and gave himself to serving other people and he's doing great things now. All of it because he reaffirmed his commitment in God and his word. And so if you're here and you're struggling, I want you to understand you're never going to find a philosopher. By the way, we are all philosophers. Everybody's searching for meaning and purpose. Solomon was the philosopher. And after he had tried everything, he boiled it down to this. In the midst of the hevel, you have to remember what you know about God is true. So, remember God. And he says, remember when you are disillusioned with wisdom. So that's his first experiment. Then he tries something else. He moves, he moves from wisdom and he tries money. So remember God when you are dissatisfied with money. So this verse is in Ecclesiastes 5.10. He says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Now, some of you just relaxed a little bit when you read that because it's about money and you don't have any and you don't think you love it because there's nothing to love, right? It's like, hey, just move on to the next one. I don't love money because there ain't no money to love. No, listen, I have found some people who have no money are the ones that love it the most because they really believe if they had more money, they would have more significance, satisfaction, and security. And people that have the money will tell you, I'm still dissatisfied, insecure, and if I had a little more, I could probably have some meaning and happiness. There was a report done in 2012. They actually studied some people who had some money. And um, they, they, they looked for a correlation between the accumulation of wealth and the amount of happiness in a person's life. And what they found was there is kind of a, a correlation between wealth accumulation and happiness until you reach a certain point. And that certain point they found 
was about $75,000 in median income in household in the household. By the way, the median income of household income in Granger is about $80,000. But they said anything beyond that, they found no correlation between the amount of happiness and the amount of money. As a matter of fact, they found that the more money you have, the more complex your life gets. And it actually brings anxiety and stress just managing all that stuff. So the key to, ha to having um, happiness is actually giving money away they said. And so that's what is affirmed in scripture. Remember who's writing this. This is Solomon, the happiest guy, uh, the, not the happiest guy, the most depressing guy, the, the wealthiest guy in, uh, in the world. He said, this is hevel. There's no correlation between your satisfaction and the accumulation of wealth. He says it again over in Ecclesiastes chapter six, verses one and two. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun. And it lies heavy on mankind. Number one, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them. But a stranger enjoys them. This is hevel. It is a grievous evil. Do you understand? There are some people to whom God gives some of his stuff to steward and to manage. Hey, Keith, uh, do you keep hearing that ding on somebody's phone? It's mine. It's on the front row. Would you turn that off over there? That's really bothering me, okay? I appreciate that. Thank you. So would everyone else like to turn off the dinger on your phone right now and follow the preacher's example? Okay. There are two gifts mentioned in this verse. Do you see the two gifts? To one person, God may give some of his stuff and says, manage it well. But the second gift is actually the gift to enjoy it. And Solomon's saying, why doesn't God ever give that gift? It's because God never intended for you to find satisfaction and pleasure and significance enjoying your money. God gives you money to use it as a tool to help others enjoy God. That's where the satisfaction comes from. That's where the purpose comes from. You remember, were you here a few weeks ago when I told you, Andrea and I, we had this crazy life before we started um, Harvest and we lived in this trailer? It's a true story, okay? True story. For 15 years, we lived in, a, in an RV travel trailer, about 400 square feet with um, four kids. And so we started out and we looked like this, okay? So uh, here's a picture of us. This is 1996. As you can see, Andrea and I have not changed a bit. This is kid number one. This is Brooke. And uh, behind us is our 30-foot 35-foot uh, Dutchman fifth-wheel travel trailer, which we lived in. And um, that, that was fine, um, but then Zach showed up. And then Allie showed up and then Leah showed up and we just kept sticking kids in corners and tire racks. And, and we just, it, it was a very simple life because you could only own what would fit in the trailer. And if you brought a kid home, you had to throw out some stuff just to make room. So it was a simple life, but that's kind of the way we started. And uh, we didn't receive a salary for what we were doing. We were, we were kind of missionaries to America. We would travel to churches and spend some time ministering there. And then we'd pack it all up, move it down the road, and start again in another church. So we did that for 15 years. The first 12 years we did that, 
um, we had no other home. We just lived in the trailer. The trailer wasn't ours. It was borrowed. And so in a sense, we were really homeless. And so in 2003, when I had the uh, last kid, God really started kind of convicting me that as the father and I need to provide for my family kind of a permanent dwelling place. Just, it might be nice for your wife to actually have a home and your children and a place to come home to. So, so we began to pray that God would allow us to have a home. And so um, we, we just started asking God to supply some more money so we could buy a home. And um, we kind of started a little savings account and God started building that a little bit. We were making about a thousand dollars a month from support. People would send in $25 checks or hundred dollar checks or something like that. And so we started saving as much as we can. The Lord provided a little extra. And uh, in this savings account, we built up about $4,000 just getting started toward God give us a house. And uh, then uh, we were in some meetings and uh, there was this speaker that came in. Um, his name was Vernon Brewer. And Vernon Brewer had started an international aid organization called World Help. And he had some strategic partnerships over in India where uh, the gospel is, is very scarce. And yet there's, there's pockets of believers over there that meet in house churches. And he had been connected to them. And one of the things they had told him was that um, we are really mocked by uh, people of other faiths because they have these big temples and worship centers and these elaborate synagogues and different things. And he says they mock us because we just we have to kind of meet in people's basements and just kind of cower together and things like that. And they would say things to us like, if your God is so big, then why can't he provide for you a place to worship? And they would mock them. So Vernon told us this story and he said through some connections that he had, he had found out that there were about a thousand congregations over there that actually he could build a church facility for them for about $4,000 each. And so he shared this need with us. And guess what God did? God said, hey, Trent, you got $4,000 sitting over there. And I said, do you want that? <laughs> he said, yeah. Okay, it's your money. So we wrote that $4,000 check and we sent it off to World Help to build a church. About a year later, I got a package in the mail and there was a, a plaque and a picture and the picture was this. And the plaque said, dedicated to the glory of God by the Griffith family. And that's what $4,000 can build in India. Now, looking at that church, can I tell you the joy in my heart when I look at that is worth far more than $4,000. So I planned on telling you this story, but last night I was thinking, you know, they invented the Internet since this time. And I wonder if I could actually go. I wonder if this church actually still exists. And so I Googled it. And sure enough, when I Googled the Himalayan Free Church in Darjeeling, North India, I found the spot on the Google map where the church is. And then I found out they actually have a Facebook page. And so I opened up the Facebook page and this is what I saw. That's what it looks like on the inside. And it looks like they need a, a made for more financial campaign to expand this thing. They need some more square footage over there. But um, listen, 
when we use our money so that others can enjoy God, that's what brings meaning to the money. It's not in making more. It's by giving more for the purposes for which God intended it. So remember God when you are dissatisfied with money. And then this, remember God when you're disappointed with pleasure. All right, so he's tried wisdom, he's tried money, and now he moves on to the third test, pleasure. Here it is. I said in my heart, come now, heart, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was hevel. I said of laughter, it is mad. And I said of pleasure, what use is it? So apparently he tried to stimulate his five senses. Things that he see, th things that he saw, things that he heard, things that he tasted, things that he smelled, things that he touched. Think about our culture today. We are swimming in sensory perception. Movies for our eyes. Perfume for our smell. Food for our taste. Sexual gratification for our physical senses of touch. And yet, all of it, Solomon had at his disposal. How many women did he have available to him on any given night? A thousand. And he tried them all. And at the end of it, when every sense had been stimulated, he says, it's mad. What use is it? And so the second voice speaks to the first voice and says, remember your creator in the days of your youth. So he tells us that we are to remember, but he also tells us not only that we are to remember, but he tells us who we are to remember. We're to remember our creator. Our creator. This is what trips philosophers up because they know the rules and the laws of science say that every effect has a cause. And so it's hard for them to grapple with the concept of God because it leads them to the question, what? What caused God? And this is where they get tripped up. They don't have a category for the uncaused cause of everything. And the second voice says, remember the uncaused cause of everything. If you can get your head around that, then you will understand God is other. He is different. He didn't have a cause. He is self-existent. His existence is dependent on no one and nothing. I am creation. He is creator. And he has made me for more than playing around with his creation. He has made me to glorify him as creator as his creation. And he has made me to connect and to commune with him as creator as he has made me creation. He has made me, as we said a couple of weeks ago, with value and purpose and intent. 
and he wants me on mission with him. I read somewhere this week, somebody said, God, we know from the first page of the Bible, God made man in his image. And it seems like man has been trying to return the favor ever since. As man tries to make God in his image. And the second voice says, stop it. Just remember who God is as creator and respond to him as creation, living for the purpose for which you were made. I'm told who I am to remember, and then I'm told when I am to remember. Verse 1, remember also your creator when? In the days of your youth. Now, I would like all of the youthful people to stand now, okay? Uh, I want everybody under the age of, let's say, 25. All the 25 and under people, you can stand. Please stand. We want to see the youth in the room right now. Okay, everybody, those of you that are able, turn around and look at the people uh, in the room right now. Now, first of all, um, there's an overwhelming number of 25 and younger people in the room right now. And are, are, are you impressed with this? I mean, there are, some, there are some churches that don't have a 25-year-old in the room. And so here they are. This is the hope of the future of the church, okay? Now, remain standing. By the way, all of these people are broke. None of them have any money whatsoever. Don't expect them to give anything in the building campaign. So this is, but you know what? Those of you that are seated, this is why we give in the building campaign because these people keep showing up and expect for us to provide a place for them uh, in the room. So this is good. Now, by the way, if you're standing, I was joking about you guys not giving in the building campaign. You got money, all right? You just, you gotta give something, all right? Just throw in, just something there. All right, now listen, I'm looking at you guys and some of you are thinking, I am having way too much fun right now to get serious about God. When I am finished having fun, then I'll get serious about God. Don't you do it. First of all, there's no guarantee that you will remember God when you are older. There is a higher likelihood that you will remember God then if you put him first now. You guys can be seated. Now, those of you that are, let's say, uh, let's say 50 and older, 50 and older people, let's just stand up. Stand up, if you're able. Um, the, <laughs> 50 and older people. All right, now you stand up. All right, now look around. This is, this is cool. All right, now, look, now those of you that are older, I want you to remain standing if you started following Jesus seriously after the age of 50. Remain standing if you started following Jesus seriously after the age of 50. All right, so here are the people, they followed God seriously, but they, they had a late start. Those of you that are standing, how many of you wish you would have started earlier? And you have, you have any regrets? I'm so glad I waited. I'm just Life just went really great without God, just managing all the hevel. I'm so glad I didn't waste all those years following God in my I don't see anybody like that, right? I don't know anybody like that. Thank you, you guys can have a seat. So what they're saying to you is get started now. Now, those of you that didn't stand up, you're somewhere in the middle. Let me just encourage you. You're not getting any younger, all right? <laughs> the time to follow Jesus is now. You will never be as young as you are today. Start remembering your creator in the days of your youth. So I said there's three points to this message. That's the first point. What's the second point? 
Oh, you weren't listening. Well, I'll tell you. It's fear God. Fear God. We found that down here in verse 13. It says this. The end of the matter, after all has been heard, is fear God. Fear God. It's like, really? Are we supposed to be afraid of God? Are we supposed to cower from Him? What does that mean? No, listen. The, the best definition of fearing God I've ever heard is this. The fear of God is the continual awareness that I am in the presence of God. He sees everything I do. He hears everything I say. And he knows everything I think. But I sometimes am not consciously aware of that. And that's why I do stupid stuff. Is because I think I won't get caught. That I will never have to answer for this. I hide it. It's in secret. My spouse doesn't know. My friends don't know. My small group doesn't know. And, and my pastor doesn't know. And so as long as I don't get caught, I'm fine. Fearing God means I live as if I was on that screen all week long and God was watching it. Would it change the way that you talked this week? If we could play all the words that came out of your mouth this week in church? Would it change the way? Has it changed the way that you drive through intersections now? We've seen those little lights up on the, the corners now and the, uh, the cameras, the surveillance cameras. You get that nice little ticket in the mail. It's like, I didn't see a cop. Yeah, but they saw you. <laughs> what would it, how would it change our decision making if we lived with the continual awareness that we are in the presence of God? James McDonald says fearing God is like this. If, if, the fear, fear is wisdom that seeks a right relationship with the fear source. So if I'm running and a dog starts chasing me, am I going to fear? Yeah, unless I have a piece of bacon in my pocket and I can pull it out and make peace with said dog, right? It's like, well, now I make a right relationship with the dog and I don't fear you anymore because I made the relationship right. And it works in every category. If you fear lung cancer, you stop smoking. If you fear obesity, you stop going to Krispy Kreme donuts. If you fear tooth decay, you start brushing. If you fear dying in a car accident, you put your seatbelt on. If you fear the future, you save for retirement. If I fear God, I change my behavior. I seek a right relationship with God. I trust Christ for forgiveness of sin. I listen to his instruction and I live a life that pleases him knowing he sees what I'm doing. He knows what I'm thinking and he hears what I'm saying. Fearing God doesn't mean I put distance between me and God. It means I do everything to bridge the distance between me and God. And I know the only way I can do that is through Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. And so the fear of God characterizes a person's relationship with God, knowing that Jesus is the one standing between. He is the only one standing between my sin and God's judgment. And out of the overflow of gratefulness of Jesus, I seek to please him in right relationship with him. And the fear of God will make you fearless before the face of man. 
No matter who is ridiculing you, no matter who is marginalizing you and rejecting you and mocking you, living in the fear of God puts you in a courageous position in the face of men. And I would say this, wherever wisdom fails, try fear. Do you remember how Solomon tried wisdom and he said it's hevel? You just put the fear of God right there in the, all the questions that you can't answer. Like, I, I don't know why stuff happens, but I, I fear God too much to shake my fist in his face. Fear God. And the last thing is this. Obey God. Sounds simple, doesn't it? Why does he say that here in verse 14? He says, keep his commandments. This is the whole duty, the whole purpose for man's existence. Verse 14, God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Remembering God and fearing God is not a substitute for obeying God. There's actually some activity that's involved in doing what God says and avoiding things God says to avoid. So what motivates me to do that? The knowledge that God will bring every deed into judgment. Listen, everyone will stand in judgment before God. That's, that's actually good news. Has somebody ever hurt you, cheated you, lied against you, abused you, oppressed you? Did you know that God saw that? And that person will stand before God on the day of judgment. That's also bad news for those of you that oppress, steal, lie, cheat other people. Because one day, everyone will give an account for every deed they've ever done. Even the things that were hidden. Everyone will be judged by the same set of standards. Do you see the last two words of the book? Whether good or evil. Says who? Says God. Good and evil are not human constructs. We don't get to decide by majority vote what is good and what is evil. God has decided that. And what is good for you has been good for all people at all times in all places for all eternity. The rules don't change. Now, they may change in your mind. They don't change when you're standing in front of the judgment. You will be based on what God says is good and what God says is evil, not what you say is good and not what you say is evil. Am I increasing the fear of God in your life? Then obey Him and do what God says is good. And then there's this sobering reality. Every person who stands before God should rightfully be judged as evil. You say, I'm not that bad. You're a dirty, rotten sinner. You have not always remembered God. You have not perfectly feared God. And you have not adequately obeyed God. Therefore, you should be judged by God. It's all about our heads and pray and go home. Wait, wait, there's got to be more, right? Yes, there's more. But that's where Ecclesiastes ends. I told you at the beginning of this message, if you only hear the first voice, 
you'll be hopeless. You'll want to commit suicide. What is the second voice saying? Who is the second voice? The second voice is Jesus. Do you understand the rest of the story of the gospel is this? That Jesus actually perfectly remembered God, feared God, and obeyed God. And those of us that have trusted in Jesus can stand before God and be treated as if we were good because on the cross, God the Father treated Jesus, God the Son, as if He was evil. Therefore, I don't have to fear God's judgment. I can live gratefully obeying God because I know that Jesus has bridged the gap between me and God. He's put me in right relationship with Him. Now I can obey God. I don't obey God to become good. I obey God because I've already been judged to be good because Jesus was judged as bad on the cross. He took my sin so I could take His goodness as a substitute goodness before God in judgment. That's the good news of the gospel. And, it, and so many people don't get it. They think that being good qualifies you before God. Nobody's ever been good enough before God. It's only in trusting Christ and then out of that, obeying God out of gratefulness for the gospel. I want to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Would you personalize what God may have said to you this morning? I do not have enough time to go through everything that you should do to obey God. But the good news is this. The Holy Spirit's been talking to you the whole time. And if He's put something on your heart that you need to repent of and confess, do that now. The one command that everybody in this room needs to obey right now is this. Repent and believe the gospel. If you've never done that, this is a great time to do it. You've heard the gospel. You've been convicted of sin. If he's igniting faith in your heart to trust what Jesus did on the cross, then just open up your heart, trust him and tell him. Say, Lord, by your standards, I, I should be judged as evil. Thank you for what Jesus did on that cross to absorb my evil so I could absorb his good. I trust you. Forgive my sin. From this point on, I want to live my life remembering you, fearing you, and obeying you. If you've never done that, do that right now. For the majority of you, this is old news, nothing new. My job is just simply to remind you, don't forget the gospel. With heads bowed and eyes closed, would you stand with me right now? Quietly. Let's remain in a spirit of prayer. I want to pray right now for you. Lord, we're about to dismiss ourselves back into the hevel. And there will be chaos in relationships. There will be injustice in our own hearts. There will be a lack of motivation. There'll be a temptation to forget you tomorrow. I pray that by your grace, we would grow in the knowledge in the goodness of Jesus Christ. All for your glory. 
God, thank you for what you're doing and what you've spoken to us this morning. I pray that someone here today that needs to put faith in Christ for the very first time to be regenerated, born again by your spirit. God, would you do that merciful, gracious act right now in their hearts and they would respond publicly in repentance and faith. And God, fuel the rest of us for the assignments you have for us. And I pray that this great army of people would go out of here as a light, obeying you, giving you glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We'll see you next week. You are loved.